everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Jean-Francois Barsoum, Canadian leader, smart cities, water and transportation at IBM. What started it all was really a concern around environmental issues. The problem is so bad that in some urban areas, if you take a look at cities that were especially growing after the Second World War, so many of the North American cities, the the space that is dedicated to cars is about two-thirds of the surface area of a city. So we dedicate twice as much room to our cars as we do to ourselves. And that is clearly not a sustainable or even preferable thing to do. There is clearly a need to, to improve that. And I think that that's where the interest of autonomous cars is. Even assuming each individual car is not shared by multiple families at once or multiple people at once, you could still reduce the number of cars by about a third just by sharing the existing cars that we have now. So that that would be interesting. And if the cars are autonomous and could move from one place of the city to another to correspond to demand, it's quite possible you could reduce the number of cars required by 80%. This is Jean-Francois. Since joining IBM, he has provided strategic advice to a diverse set of clients, financial institutions, higher education, professional associations, pharmaceutical companies, and telecoms. He has also been invited to speak at conferences on the subjects of innovation, smart transportation, and climate change on four continents. For the past decade, Jean-Francois has participated in numerous conferences on water and environmental management and led IBM's ties with some related research organizations and NGOs. He helped develop some core smart city concepts and has deepened IBM's involvement with several North American cities as a result. He is among the few Canadians trained by the Nobel Peace Prize winner Al Gore and regularly presents the material seen in the movie An Inconvenient Truth and subsequent scientific updates to audiences across the whole of Canada. He's on the board of the Climate Reality Project and of the Canadian Water Network and is a member of the David Suzuki's Foundation Steering Committee. He's also a member of the Intelligent Transportation Experts Committee, a forum initiated by the Quebec Association of Transportation. When I learned about Jean-Francois' ideas on how to utilize technology to solve some of our largest global challenges, I instantly invited to my podcast. We explore the size of the challenge and how, by using various technology layers together, we can start to reimagine transportation the way we have become to know it. We also address the need for organizations at both public and private level to work closely together to maximize the potential of the impact. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that to create large-scale change, you have to think global, but implement local. Secondly, why it is in the benefit of everyone if we start to remove silo thinking in our business, not only in transportation, but universally. And thirdly, 
how the change we hope for can only happen if we succeed in changing behavior. Our easy options need to be replaced by even easier alternatives. And that's clear room for innovation. So Jean-Francois, thank you for being on the podcast today and making the time available to share your view on the world with regards to smart cities. Thank you. It's very nice to be invited. It's a pleasure. Well, the reason why I, uh, why I invited you was indeed to have a little bit of a different angle to the topic that I normally cover, which is how, what, can, what value we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And when I was introduced to you by some of, one of my other podcasts, and I heard what you were doing around yeah, the work around smart cities and how technology is impacting yeah, that whole atmosphere, I thought there was definitely a couple of good angles to that. So... The first question at the end is like, what drove you to, to have this dedication to, with technology towards creating the, the city of the future? Well, all that started, and, and by the way, thank you again for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here, and I've listened to some of your podcasts, and it's a very interesting string of podcasts that you have. Thank you. Um, so what started it all was really a concern around environmental issues, and a colleague of mine who is now responsible for environment at a large hotel conglomerate. And I had decided that, you know, consulting was interesting, but what we needed to do was to figure out, well, how how is consulting going to impact or deal with climate change issues? And that was the, the beginning of the thought process. And eventually we got to the point where we decided that a, a couple of issues, notably transportation and greenhouse gases and water, were two issues that needed to be addressed most urgently. And both of these issues, transportation and water, tend to be managed at the city level. You can try to manage or regulate at national levels or at enterprise levels or even at international levels. But as we've seen with greenhouse gas emission regulation, that tends to move very slowly at those levels. But if you look at the cities, the cities are the ones that are doing the most impactful change. And, And looking at transportation and water then at a city lens, that eventually became, well, how do we manage the data around transportation and water? And that is what formed the genesis for smarter cities. And so, you know, that was that was the start. Now, of course, in smarter cities now, there are many other issues that you could deal with. You could deal with public security, for example. There are smart grid issues, which also tend to be managed at the city level. So energy demand is very much municipal level scale of decision making, even though, you know, many of the plants uh, power production plants, all those decisions are made at at more provincial or regional levels. But certainly municipalities are an interesting lens through which you can look at many of the environmental issues. And in Europe especially, that's where the decision level is for transportation and for environment. So cities were really an appropriate scale for, for these issues. I can imagine. So by, by making cities smarter, you influence the decisions, well, with regards to those key drivers for, for emission of greenhouse gases. And with that, you, uh, you start solving the problem at the source. That's right. That's right. And, and even in the United States, which federally has not been, let's say, consistent in adopting more aggressive greenhouse gas reductions, 
you could see that cities are where many of the changes are being implemented. So that's the one encouraging factor is that regardless of where you go, even where national and state governments aren't as proactive as we would like, you can see that cities are making some of the decisions that need to be made. So that's that's encouraging. Yeah, that's indeed encouraging. What do you believe is is the opportunity? I mean, because the, 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 I hear about small smart cities is something that I've heard about for a while now. What are good examples of this that, that really stand out and that really also have a direct impact? Well, you know, I like to focus on transportation and, and water because those were my initial interests and I think they have the, the most impact. And, you know, with transportation in particular, you can see that cities in Europe, for example, that have adopted some forms of congestion management like Stockholm or London, Stockholm system is particularly interesting because it uses variable tolling to try to throttle the number of cars that come in during rush hour and and avoid congestion at the peak hours. And that's been particularly effective for the past 10 or 12 years. Those, I think, are interesting examples of what has been done. We could see what is going to be done in places like Singapore, where they're going to introduce per kilometer tolling. So the idea that every car should pay for the public space it takes up and and over there you will you will pay for each kilometer of road that you use depending on what time of day. So during rush hour would be more expensive and ideally you would charge more for residential streets as opposed to, you know, highways or areas where it's okay to have more cars. You can see that those kinds of projects, there's even been a project, a pilot project in Eindhoven a number of years back for per kilometer tolling that was particularly instructive in understanding how mileage tolling can work. I mean, I'm aware of initiatives in the Netherlands because, I mean, I'm Dutch by by origin. Yes. But at at a national level, it has failed. Um, That's right. So it's I mean, politically it's politically a very difficult thing because there's a bit of of an acquired right, you know, to to try and, and tell people that, you know, you're going to be charged per kilometer of road use when, you know, we're already taxed on gasoline and petrol and and we have to pay for licenses and for license plates and so on. It's a very difficult argument to make. And I think that the transition to autonomous cars may be providing us with a channel by which we can start rethinking the financing of transportation in a way that is much more sustainable. So we're we're going to enter an era where it's going to be possible to travel by car and not drive. And that brings a number of, of advantages. So one is if you're not able to drive right now because of an impairment or because you're not old enough or, or, or you're too old or you've lost your driver's license, whatever reason, well, you could still travel by car. But that, that brings some interesting questions. So if I can drive my car to work, take my car to work, and I decide I don't want to pay for parking, I could just send it home empty. And and maybe other members of my family could use the car. Maybe my kids could use it to go to their football game, or my wife could take it to go to her work or or whatever. Or I could even lend it to somebody else. But if I do that, then my car is traveling empty. 
for part of the time, and I could conceivably double the number of cars that are on the road. So I reduced the need for parking, but I increased the number of cars on the road. And that's not really something I would like to, I would like to do. And so we could imagine a tax on empty cars that are traveling, for instance. Now, that would be an interesting mileage tax because people now don't feel like they have an acquired right to have an empty car travel on the road. And in fact, they would probably agree that if we have a lot of empty cars traveling on the road, it's going to prevent people from traveling on the road because it's going to create too much congestion. Now, the people in the cars might be able to work but or, or watch movies or be otherwise productive, but it's not really a good way to manage a transportation system. It's likely to make it much more expensive. Exactly. Because, I mean, there's already all these discussions going on and around people that are driving their car alone, you know, without, without yeah. any passengers. I mean, I've, from, from my experience in the Netherlands, there was actually at some point in time even a, a road system where a number of, a number of roads that were adjusted for, for people that were for cars that had, had three or more passengers to, to go on a, spe- on a special lane. Um, yeah. but, but even that didn't really work out. But now, yeah. so now you can actually see that cars could go home empty, which is even worse. I completely agree with yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Well, in North America, I think the average number of people in a car at rush hour is just slightly over one. So maybe 1.1 people per car on average. Yeah. Yeah. Now we we feel there's congestion and there are and we need to build more bridges and we need to build more lanes. And we know that historically that hasn't worked. Every time we add capacity to the road network, it quickly gets eaten up because people see, oh, there's no traffic, I can move further out. And so the traffic comes back typically in two or three years. The problem is so bad that in some urban areas, if you take a look at cities that were especially growing after the Second World War, so many of the North American cities, the the space that is dedicated to cars is about two-thirds of the surface area of a city. So you measure the amount of parking lots and the streets and you add all that up and that's almost two-thirds of the of the surface area, which means that there is one-third for people. One-third for people to live, one-third for people to work. And within that you you have to find the the space for parks. And so we dedicate twice as much room to our cars as we do to ourselves. And that is clearly not a sustainable or even preferable thing to do. Financially, it's extremely expensive to do. And if you look at all that surface area, those cars don't move 95% of the time. They are parked, immobile, just waiting to be used. And when they are used, they are three quarters empty. Most cars have at least four seats and three of them are typically empty. So three quarters of that of the space, even when the cars are in use, is wasted. So there is clearly a need to to improve that. And I think that that's where the interest of autonomous cars is. They they do have the potential to make the problem worse if we use them incorrectly. So if we just decide to add 
intelligence to existing cars and keep using them the way we use them now, mm-hmm. I don't think there's much of an advantage. In fact, they might make the problem worse. But if we use artificial intelligence to to redesign the way that we use our network, so if we if the cars don't need to be parked because they are self-driven, then maybe some of the parking can be rededicated to other modes of transportation like bicycles, for instance, or walking pedestrians or parks. So that would that would already be an improvement. And if instead of each of us having an individual car for our own use, if we could just order up a car that yes. would show up and maybe there might be somebody else in it or maybe not. Maybe there's a level of service that sometimes you want to be alone and work quietly and it's more expensive and sometimes you don't mind sharing and there are more people. Some people won't mind walking a block or two to go pick up a an autonomous vehicle a little bit further and be dropped off a little bit further from work. That's okay, too. And others will want door-to-door service, and that might be more expensive. But all these levels of service might be slightly different. But if they're all enabled by artificial intelligence, they might free us from the need to each have a car individually. And and if we don't have an individual car, our own, we might be more open to sharing. I think part of the the difficulty we've had with cars right now is it's your own property. You're not that keen on having strangers come into it. There's some exception with Turo and there's some exceptions with Uber and so on. But in that case, the driver's still there, so he can take care of exactly. the car. But yeah. if it's not personal property, maybe maybe we'll be more open to sharing them. And and reducing the number of cars and getting more people in each car is going to be critical to reducing our impact on the environment. Yeah, what's, what's, what strikes me or what, what question is coming up is, has there been any research about what level of, of change, what level of savings could be made with that? I mean, how many cars mm-hmm. do we really need? Is there any number yeah. on that? Well, so that's uh, interesting. There's a researcher at, at the University of Montreal at Polytechnique who has uh, done some research and just took a look at the the way that people travel. So there's demand origin destination study that is run every five years in the Montreal region. So we know approximately where people leave from and where they go in a given week. So that study runs for a number of weeks, and much of the decision around building of infrastructure is based on that. Now, this researcher used that information to try and extrapolate, well, if people were open to sharing their vehicle, but Uh she wasn't even looking at sharing the inside of the vehicle. She was just saying sharing the vehicle. So let's imagine that all the people who own cars, when they don't use them, were to make them available for somebody else to to borrow. And we could do this for all the vehicles in the city. Now, optimally, because there's still a number of what we call pendulum swings, so there are people that go to work in the morning and go home in the evening, there's still the need for a number of cars. But even assuming each individual car is not shared by multiple families at once or multiple people at once, you could still reduce the number of cars by about a third just by sharing the existing cars that we have now. So that that would be interesting. Now, if within each car, then you could get two or three people, then you could reduce it even further. 
and if the cars are autonomous and could move from one place of the city to another to correspond to demand, it's quite possible you could reduce the number of cars required by 80%. So, you know, these all have aggregating factors. So being able to share the vehicles between families or between households, sharing the inside of the car so that several households use them at the same time, and then having them autonomous so that they can move around to different parts of the city when they're required. If you do all that, you can drop the, the number quite significantly. I can imagine. I mean, my God, that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be of an enormous impact. Yes. Traffic jams, congestion, and- these type of things, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And if you if you take a look at the number of cars in 2010 is when we reached a billion cars on the road worldwide. Yeah. And it looks as though we're going to hit 2 billion next year in 2020. So it took us nearly a century to get to 1 billion and we're about to double it in 10 years. So there's massive growth in the number of cars on the road. A lot of countries where the the income level is rising, that's one of the first things that they want to do is get a car. And we really have to find a way to reduce that, uh, to reduce the growth, but eventually reduce the number of cars because it's environmentally unsustainable, but economically it's very expensive too for cities to do that. If you could just reuse, we did a quick calculation for the city of Montreal on reusing existing parking space and being able to transfer that to living or working space. So I mentioned earlier that two-thirds of a city is dedicated to cars and one-third for people living and working. Well, the downside of this space dedicated to cars is that it generates very little revenue for the city. Now, if you could transfer out of that 60 or 65%, just a 5% slice, and say, well, we're going to build places to live and work with that 5%. For a city the size of Montreal, that would be half a billion dollars a year in revenue from the property taxes on what you're able to develop. It's enormous. And so for cities that have already reached the amount of growth that they can in the area. And if you don't want to eat up all the green space around the cities, that's a a very clear way to to try to increase the the revenue and bring financial sustainability to a city because much of the parking in North America is free. And that that has, interestingly, an enormous cost to society. Hmm. I mean, looking at, I mean, your your focus is transportation, but but what is the... I mean, out of all the transportation options, what is the one that technology can have the biggest impact on in in creating a positive impact? Well, we think that generally the what is likely to happen in transportation or what the ideal outcome would be is if we could break the silos across the different transportation modes. So right now, typically, when you decide to go from point A to point B, you say, well, I'm going to take a car because it's easiest, or if you have a transit pass, I'm going to take the bus or the subway. If you have a bicycle, you're going to take a bicycle. So you make one choice and you make the trip. Now, technology has the potential to break those silos, to break the walls between the silos and allow you to make multimodal decisions. So 
I need to go from point A to point B. Well, maybe the best way is for me to take my bicycle or a shared bicycle to the subway station, take the subway for a part, and then the last bit maybe is out in the suburbs and I take a shared vehicle out there. So the first impact is going to be for technology to help us plan our plan our, our trips in a way that goes across different modes. And if I can do this, then maybe I don't need a personal car so much. So that is the the first impact. The second impact that technology might have is to allow payment that is consistent across all those different modes. So in the example I gave before, one of the barriers to adoption is the fact that, well, planning of that trip is very difficult. So if I need to take my bike and then the subway and then a shared vehicle like a zip car or a car to go or reach now, well, I need to know, is shared bicycle available? Am I going to get there in time to catch the subway or train? And is there going to be a car at the other end? So if technology can help me assure that, yes, there will be one of the mode of transportation will be available at each point and it will be seamless, then great. But the second part is the payment also has to be seamless. So there are applications right now that help do some multimodal trip planning. They're a bit rudimentary for the most part, but they do exist. But the second part is going to be, can I pay for all that trip all at once? And so maybe it will be through a monthly fee that includes the taxi and the shared car and the shared bicycle and the subway and the train and all that, or it might be per trip, but at least I'll have an easy way to do that. And so if I can, if we can use technology to allow for the planning and for the finances of that trip to be transparent and easy, it'll be much easier for people to give up their car because in fact, the individual car is very simple. I only have to make one choice, which is I take my car and then I, you know, all the payments, well, you know, I have to maintain it and I have to pay for gas and so on. But all that's more or less invisible once I've paid for the car and, but it's easy, I can manage it. But if I have all these different other modes to manage, then it's complicated. I have all these different bills that I pay every month. How much does it cost me per trip? Uh, People start asking all kinds of questions. But if we can make that transparent, I think that will be a much more credible competitor to the individual car, which right now is the default because it's easy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Uber has... um has introduced the, the, the pool rights already a, a couple of years ago. Has there been yes. some evidence that that model is actually working and stopping people from, from, from taking their own car or even buying their own car? I don't know that there's, that there's clear evidence. There's some evidence that shows it's taking people away from public transportation as opposed yeah. to their own car. Yeah. But I think we're also seeing some evidence that young people are delaying getting their own driver's license in yes. part because they feel they can use Uber. So there might be another cultural shift that we'll see over a number of years where there are fewer newer drivers that are coming in, especially in places where there's already saturation. And maybe that will they maybe that will have a positive impact in in the future. The question of the the pool, though Uber Pool, there's another service called Express Pool. Uh-huh. And Express Pool works a little bit the same way that Uber Pool does, in that there are already people in the car when you get on, and 
they might drop them off on the way and so on. But Express Pool requires you to walk to meet the Uber along its trajectory. So it doesn't have to make a detour to pick you up or to drop you off. But the interesting thing about that model is that it's very much the way a bus system works in a city. Exactly, There's bus line, you have to go meet it. It will drop you off where it's convenient for the line. And ideally, the line is designed to cater to the most people. But now that's interesting because that means that Uber is looking more and more like a public transportation type of system. But it can also do door-to-door service. So it is providing an entire range of services, of transportation services, and charging more or less depending on the level of service that you're looking for. Eventually, that's what we're going to need public transportation agencies to do as well. So we've decided that public transportation was going to work a certain way, but now we're realizing that in a world where all the vehicles are electric and autonomous, what is the difference between car to go and Uber and taxi and a bus? There isn't really any difference at all because the vehicle comes and picks you up where you are or close to where you are, maybe a bit further. It will drop you off close to where you need to go or a bit further. There might be some people in the vehicle or not, depending on you know, how much you paid and how big the vehicle is and what time it is. And there's a variable payment that is attached to the level of service. In some cases, you maybe you will get into a luxury limousine all by yourself with a movie and a glass of whiskey. And in other cases, you will be standing in a bus with more people. But essentially, all these are the same. The vehicles should be dispatched to where they are most needed and be used more efficiently that way, which means that public transportation and Uber and Hertz and budget rent-a-car and enterprise and public transportation agencies, all these organizations are in the same business. And they are going to start understanding how they interact with each other and how they make transportation more efficient. And all this is going to be done through data. Right now, each of these verticals controls its own data, does its own optimization in a way that favors it, obviously, but they're looking to improve their own business model. But at the scale of a city, we need all these modes to work together in a way that's more efficient for the entire city, which means that technology is going to have to start bridging the data across all these organizations as well. That's where it all connects together again. So so from all the things that you've learned so far, the things that you've seen, the initiative you're working on yourself, what should cities do different? I mean, where does, I mean, all the examples that you provided me right now are, I think, also examples that, that could start by themselves. I mean, what is the... What is the power of the city or what should the city do to encourage this in a better way? That's a good question. And I wish I knew the exact right answer to it. I mean, I think the the first element of the answer probably has to do with data. So to make sure that data across all these modes, whether it's public transportation or private types of trans- transportation is available in a way, obviously, that doesn't you know, impact on people's right to privacy. But 
provides enough data for the city to try and optimize the transportation system. I think that's the first thing that they need to do. And I think that's relatively urgent because transportation is such a huge part of municipal budgets. So I think that is probably the first place they have to think. But very quickly after that, after the data, I think they're going to have to find a way to manage risk better. And here's what I mean. The way that cities tend to plan has very much to do with minimization of risk. So I'm going to minimize the political risk. I'm going to minimize the civil engineering risk. I'm essentially going to build things exactly the way they were built 10 years ago or 20 years ago, slightly better because there's some improvement in technology, but I'm going to use the same methods. And that's an insurance policy to make sure that the bridge doesn't fall you know, if I do everything right, the bridge isn't going to fall, there isn't going to be a big accident. And I'm not going to invest in a project that's going to show up in the front page of the paper saying the city wastes tens of millions of dollars on a project that doesn't work. So cities tend to not take very many risks. But if we take a look at the possibilities in transportation, so I talked about sharing vehicles, maybe having more people inside a vehicle. Autonomous vehicles also have an interesting property, which is they take up less physical space while they're driving. If the lanes are properly done and, you know, and all the, and a majority at least of the vehicles are autonomous, well, they can follow each other more closely. They take up less lane space left and right, which means you could presumably at least double the number of vehicles on any given highway. So if I can double the number of vehicles on the highway and I have more people in each vehicle, well, that means that when I plan my infrastructure, let's say I want to build a bridge and I want to move 100,000 people across it every day. Well, 100,000 people now means 99,000 cars. but If I have autonomous vehicles and there are more people in each car, well, maybe I I don't need even a quarter of that space. And so when I plan for infrastructure, I have to think ahead. I can't just think of planning infrastructure based on what happened yesterday. That infrastructure is going to be there for 20, 30, 100 years. So I have to think about what's going to be on that infrastructure in 10, 20 years. And I may not have all the answers, but I have to at least consider how that transition is going to happen. And right now, cities aren't doing that. They're basically doing, looking at past data points, drawing a straight line into the future and saying, this is what we need to build. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, they have to, they're going to have to take risks. And how they decide to take risks and what risks they take and how they mitigate them, I think that is one of the key points of how cities are going to have to deal with that transition. Okay, I agree. But the moment you say, okay, I'm going to build a bridge and the bridge needs to be there by 2020, you're still going to build it, I think, the same as it was going to be 10 years years ago or 20 years ago because the transition in terms of how we transport hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These are are difficult decisions, I understand that. And also, with regards to the point that you made about it's a big income for the city, aren't they afraid that they're going to lose that and get nothing back for it? Or is it the opposite? Well, I think I think right now transportation is a losing business for the government. I okay. don't think they get their money's worth. 
from their investment. In fact, I'd be willing to to bet a lot of money that now that it's important for economic development to be able to move people and to move goods. So clearly transportation has a an economic benefit. But right now the economic benefit is not optimally obtained. You have to spend a lot in order to get a small benefit. And I think it would be possible for cities to spend much less. You know, it's getting even more complicated now with all the shopping on the internet and all the package deliveries that we're getting. Even those aren't particularly optimized. I, you know, I ordered something a few days ago. They, I ordered, I made one order. There were four or five things in the order. I got two of those packages separately on the same day, separately. So that means that there are two cars that were driving around that went through my street to drop off the box. Clearly, that is not the best way to, to do it. And in any given street, on any given day, you will see UPS and Purolator and Canada Post or US Mail. Everybody will be driving through, dropping off individual packages. And that problem is, or at least that situation, is not likely to get better soon. So we need to find some way to consolidate some of the some of the transportation for those goods and, you know, not necessarily discourage online shopping. There's there's certainly some impact on local business, so we have to think about that. But if transportation costs were fully baked in to the costs of buying online, I think we would start seeing a different way for people making decisions on where they would buy and how they would get things and and that may that might be a good thing for economic development, but also just for the the health and survival of local communities. Yes, I agree. It's fascinating. I mean, I wasn't realizing all the uh, kind of the, the the insights that we need in in order to make those decisions. And sometimes we need a stick, and sometimes we need a carrot. But there's a lot to, uh, around those two phenomena. So. Yeah. Yeah, this was really interesting. I mean, if there's anything, anyone in the audience that that uh, could help out, or I mean, what what would you ask? Are there any questions that 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 need answers from your end? Well, I think one of the first things we need to do is to work with government and private industry and try to form partnerships. So I was talking about taking risks. The cities that have been the best ones at trying new things are the ones where government and private industry have partnered to try different things. And the advantage is that, well, on the private side, you have some cover from the from the political side that regulation can be adapted to a new business model. So that's the advantage on the private side. On the public side, the advantage is you can try something a little different. If it doesn't work, you can say, well, you know, it's not me, it's the private sector. If it does work, then you can say, well, it's all because of me and I can take the credit for it. So either way, the public sector is covered. And that's often how it works, right? So so long as everybody doesn't want to take credit for everything, that, that way of sharing risk between public and private, I think is going to be essential in industries where public and private interests prime. So in environment, in transportation, in health, where we're going to have to implement 
many new in- innovations in artificial intelligence to manage care, for example. But a lot of that is controlled by public sector, at least it is in many countries. It's not in the U.S., but in Canada and Europe, public sector controls much of what happens in in healthcare. We're going to have to integrate these new technologies, and the way to do it is going to be through a partnership model. So I would say if I had to encourage people who are listening who are in the public sector, I would say seek out partnerships in the private sector and vice versa. If you're in the private sector, try to work with the public sector to find a pilot project, to find some way that you can make the public sector better, help them take a risk, but you're going to have to meet them halfway. But the payoff is going to be huge because it's going to be a societal level payoff. It's not just a payoff for one company or one transaction. It could literally change the way we manage our cities and our citizens. And I think that is, that is what we need to do. Wise advice. And that's definitely worth thinking about and yeah, to take things further. So, so where can people go to find out more about your initiatives or say hi to you? Well, I'm sure we can include my contact information on your, you know, on the podcast. So uh, I'll give you my, my email address and I'll, I'll be happy to take any questions. IBM's got a really good site on Smarter Cities where we have a bunch of that information and I have a couple of YouTube videos where I talk about some of the issues related to Smarter Cities, which we can include in the links if you like. Exactly. Perfect. I'll do that. Well, thank you very much. This was, I mean, I learned a lot from this. I mean, the funny thing is, I think, is that a lot of it, this has to do with education and making people see what we're actually doing, because I completely agree with you. I mean, the fact that these the number of cars have been growing so fast, it, mm-hmm. it all starts at the end also with individuals like myself. I mean, I have three cars here at home. so Yeah, and it's not unusual. And I think, you know, we have two cars at our house. I have three daughters. And I think we're trying to figure out a way, well, how can we get rid of one car? So we're probably not yeah. going to replace the older car when it needs replacing. And We'll get there, but yeah, true. there's a transition. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, and these things will come when technology further evolves. We'll see. But I also agree with you that people that are millennials are absolutely slow with regards to getting their driver's license. I, I mean, my two sons, yeah. it's the first one, it took years <laughs> to, to get mm-hmm. him to even consider it. So yeah. thank you very much. This was really interesting. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure was fully on my side. And for everybody listening today, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Jean-Francois Bousson, Canadian leader, smart cities, water and transportation at IBM. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. 
you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.